Welcome to the weekly podcast of Calvary Chapel, South London. A church where the truth of God's word meets and transforms the reality of our daily lives. We hope you are impacted by this week's teaching. Perhaps I will just share a word of prayer. Um, Amen. Father, we truly thank you again that you have given us this opportunity, Lord, to, to gather together as a family, to come together corporately, Lord, to sing praises to your name. Thank you, Lord, that we can sing songs like, capture my heart, I surrender my will, Lord because truly that is our desire. Thank you, Lord, that we could just be here, gathered together, and now we have this opportunity, Lord, of just sitting underneath your word, allowing your word to just permeate, Lord, and to do what it wants to do. You say in your word, Lord, that you know, it won't return unto you void. And so we gather together today, Lord, each and every one of us at a different place in our walk with you, at a different stage of our relationship with you, Lord. And our desire is that you would speak to our hearts. Our desire, Lord, is that your spirit would have his way, Lord, and that we would be in that place, Lord Jesus, where we would yield to the working of your spirit. And so, Lord, we want to just give this time over to you lord just take away every distraction i pray lord jesus help us to meditate on you let everything else lord just fade away i pray and let jesus be glorified in our midst and in our lives and in our hearts and in our minds in jesus name amen amen good afternoon family it's good to see you And um, today we will be considering our final portion in the first epistle of John, um, chapter 5. And, um, you know, as I've just been studying this chapter and having the considerations, it's like, you know, I got the controversial chapter. It's amazing, trying to make sense of it all. And uh, yeah, it's been interesting. It's been an interesting journey just trying to study God's word and to, to just see how he's trying to communicate his heart and his intention towards us. So today, as we look at this final portion, um, the vast majority of it is going to be focused on prayer. And, you know, Based on what John has already communicated to us within this epistle, you know, it's, it's quite fitting that he brings this letter to, the, to a close, in a sense, and he encourages us to pray. Amen? And so we've seen how he's looked at our position in Christ and, you know, throughout this whole epistle he's given us this full assurance of our position and our salvation in Jesus. And as I said, now he wants the hearers of this epistle to be encouraged 
and to be strengthened in their prayer life. And so if you have your Bibles, uh, would you turn with me to 1 John chapter 5? And we will begin reading from verse 14. And when you're there, please say amen. Amen. Uh, Reading from the New King James Version, it says, Now this is the confidence that we have in him, that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. And if we know that he hears us, whatever we ask, we know that we have the petitions that we have asked of him. If anyone sees his brother sinning a sin, which does not lead to death, he will ask and he will give him life for those who commit sin not leading to death. There is sin leading to death. I do not say that he should pray about that. All unrighteousness is sin and there is sin not leading to death. Now, It may seem like a very simple comment, but, you know, a marked difference between a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ and a non-believer is that believers pray. Amen? We do pray, yeah? Amen. I'm with the right crowd. Right. Believers pray. You know, through prayer, we're able to build up this relationship of talking to God. And not just talking to God, but we believe that we hear from God. Amen? Amen. And, you know, as I was considering this, you know, it's, this is just like a basic benefit and a basic privilege that we have as believers. And I would dare to say that even though it's a basic benefit and a basic privilege, the majority of us, I would say, take prayer for granted. I would say that the majority of us don't develop our prayer lives. We generally would go through seasons of our prayer life being okay, or our prayer life being so-so, or our prayer life being non-existent. We can quite easily go through a 24-hour period and not bend the knee. So we go through okay, so-so, non-existent and many times as we live our lives like this you know we wonder why we feel helpless when we are going through certain situations when we're going through certain trials and various temptations we wonder why we wonder why we don't have the strength and the simple fact is is if we had a better prayer life we may be better equipped to actually deal with the situation which has confronted us. You see, even though we may have a better prayer life, it doesn't mean that the trials and the temptations are not going to come. They're still going to come. You know, being a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ does not exempt us from trials, temptations, tribulations, but it's how we deal with those situations. You know, Jesus even said in Matthew 26, he says, you know, um, he says, watch and pray that you don't fall into temptation. 
You know, he was going through that critical point in his life when, you know, just before he's going to be arrested and everything, and he's in the garden. He says to the disciples, watch and pray, lest you fall into temptation. And those guys wouldn't even stay up and watch and pray with him for an hour. And not to be really hardcore and everything, I would say that generally we're like that as well. You know, to, to actually persevere in prayer, to develop our prayer life and everything, it's hard work. It feels like hard work. But really, it's so simple, so easy. Lord, you know, just want to commit this day into your hands, Lord. I've got these things and these challenges I need to deal with, and I just want to cover it in prayer so that you just have your way in my life during this day. I mean, it's so simple, but we don't do it. And so the apostle is encouraging us, hey guys, you need to develop your prayer life. And you know what? The New Testament and just the scriptures as a whole encourages us that we need to to pray. You know, Jesus says the currency of the kingdom is prayer. And so what the Lord wants to do and what he, you know, what John is trying to communicate is that we need to keep these open lines of communication with the Lord. We need to keep these open lines of communication flowing with the Lord. And as we keep these open lines of communication, you know, he wants us to be confident as we approach God and we talk to him. And this is why the apostle says in verse 14, he says, now this is the confidence that we have in him. That if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. Isn't that amazing that you can speak, you can communicate with God, knowing that as you speak and you communicate with him, he hears us. It's just not bouncing off the ceiling. It's actually going before his throne and he hears it. That is an amazing position to be in as a believer. Now, the word confidence here in the New, New King James is a Greek word called parousia. And this Greek word could be more accurately translated as boldness. And so with boldness now, it starts giving us this, this, this other dynamic, this other picture of how we can approach God. So if we read it again, it says, now this is the boldness that we have. Boldness because as we come to God, he wants us to have this freedom as we approach him. This freedom, this boldness to speak to him about anything and about everything. So when we think about prayer, we think about approaching God, you know, we can tell him about all of our dreams, all of our aspirations. We can share with him our our fears and our deepest longings. We can tell the Lord about the brother or sister who gets on our nerves and what we need to do about it. About the job which isn't going so great and you really want to get another job. We can tell the Lord about the illness which isn't getting any better. The exams which seem too hard. How am I going to cope? You see, God is interested in every area of our lives and he wants us to talk to him about it. 
But the majority of the time is we kind of like have this schizophrenic conversation with ourselves and not with the Lord. We talk to ourselves about it, but we don't feel like, well, Lord, I need to talk to you about it. Amen? It's just me. Amen? Okay. And so he wants us to come to him, to tell him everything boldly, but also as we approach God, you know, we need to come to him, you know, respectfully and reverently because he is God. He's the almighty. Now, the next part of the verse in the New King James says, in him, um, but it should read better as the ASV or the ESV says, which says, towards him, towards him. Now, this is the boldness we have towards him. And the reason why that's important is because the direction is important. We're looking to God. We're looking to God for something which we believe in our hearts that he is able to provide. Amen? Now, again, as we consider this, sometimes we, we approach God and we pray to the Lord. And well, I do this sometimes. I don't know if you do. But we pray to God. And sometimes I think, well, really, I can do this within my own strength. I can produce, produce this out of my own ingenuity. I can do this, Lord. I don't really need you. I kind of like feel like that sometimes. And then the Lord has to rebuke me to say, do you know what, Patrick? Maybe you can, but you need to cover it with prayer. You need to get my will within this. My thoughts within this. And so we have to be careful as we approach the Lord. And as we feel like we do things, you know, because then we look back and say, well, God didn't do that. I did that. And the Lord doesn't want us to have that attitude. Can I just pause for one moment? Is there anything you could do with this? Okay, sorry. Amen. So ultimately, ooh. okay, amen, amen, okay, um, but as believers, we look to God and we commit our situations into his hands through prayer, prayer so that ultimately, you know, we're looking for his will to be done. We're looking for Jesus to be glorified in our lives. So, as I said before, the attitude and the direction is very, very important. So it says, just rephrasing verse 14 again. Now, this is the boldness we have towards him that if we ask. Now, we're getting to the asking part. And pausing again, you know, we've got to look at the Greek word because the Greek word is ateo. A-I-T-E-O. And this word is quite important as well because it basically means a petition or a request from an inferior to a superior. 
And as we think about it, we're looking to God in prayer. We're coming from this inferior position and we're looking to someone who is superior and saying, Lord, I put this petition before you into your hands. You see how the attitude has got to be within this. It's like, if you can think of it in these terms, it's like a subject going before a king or a child going to their parent or even you know, a beggar asking for something from a passerby. It's like from an inferior position to a superior position. And so if you're tracking with me, if we can connect the dots, John is basically saying to the believer, as you come before the Lord, make sure you come correct. Make sure you come knowing you have this free, open access before him. But within this access, make sure that when you petition God, you come humbly. Recognizing that he is the almighty God and he is able to provide for all of our needs. We don't come to God demanding anything. Because God is not our personal genie who does what we want when we want. God doesn't owe us anything. And so we have to have the right attitude. We have to be humble before our Heavenly Father. And the verse goes on to say that as we make our petitions before him, it says we can ask for anything. Is that what your Bible says? That we can ask for anything, but this anything is restricted. Because it's anything that is according to his will. Now, this is the boldness that we have with, towards him. That if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. Now, that puts a whole complete different slant on everything now, doesn't it? Because our prayers, our requests have to be according to his will. You see, again, it's not an attempt for us to say, God, this is what I want and this is how I want it. Bless it. It's not that. But as we look at this, when it says according to his will, what does according to his will mean? I mean, do we just read that verse and skip over it and just move on to the next? What does according to his will mean? Because... You know, if you think about it, you could say, well, God does everything according to his will. Does he not? So if he does everything according to his will, our prayer lives could be very, very easy. We could just say, Lord, today I commit this day into your hands and I pray you do everything according to your will. In Jesus' name, amen. Done. But does it mean that? This is not what John's saying. And what I believe that John is saying is that he is encouraging the believers in Ephesus in that day and us today to subordinate our will to his will. It's that whole thing of our will decreasing so that his will will increase within our lives. So how do we do that? How do we get in that place, in that zone, in that mindset where 
our will decreases and his will increases. And as I was considering it, I just thought, well, it's good old meat and two veg. The things we probably don't like doing. It's getting to know the Lord through the scriptures. It's getting to study to show ourselves approved. It's reading the scriptures, being challenged by the scriptures. It's looking at the word as as a mirror and recognizing that God's right, I'm wrong. And because God's right and I'm wrong, I need to yield to his word. So what John, I believe, is actually encouraging the believers here today and us is, is immerse ourselves within God's word. Get to that place where we intimately know Jesus. And by doing this, you know, I believe what John is actually saying is that we will see the mysteries of God being outworked in our lives. Now that could sound very, very spiritual to you. But isn't that what the word says to us? That as we become more intimately acquainted with God through prayer and through his word, we get to know the mind of God and the will of God from our own restricted position. Because, and I say restricted position because we are in time and space. We see in part, we know in part. We don't know what's going to happen in an hour's time, but God does. So as we commit our days into his hands, for example, he knows what the future holds. He's able to speak to us as we commit these things into his hands. And he's able to prepare us or help us face the challenges which we may face. God works in an unrestricted realm, outside of the limitations of time and space. And that's why we need to pray to him because he's able to see those things and bring them down into our lives. He's able to reveal his mysteries to us. Philippians chapter two, verses 12 and 13. We all know it. Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, Not as in my presence only, but now much more in my absence. Work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. And how how do we do that? The next verse. For it is God who works in you both to will and to do for his good pleasure. He wants our will to be submitted to his will. He wants to work in us so that he can will, our will become subjected to his will. Amen? Amen. Ephesians chapter 1 verse 9. Having made known to us, what? The mystery of his will. (laughs) According to his good pleasure, which he purposed in himself. See, God wants us to be in that place where he reveals the mystery of his will for our lives. But if we don't know his word, if we're not getting intimately acquainted with Jesus, how do we know the will for our lives? Colossians, Colossians, I think 1.9, I'm not sure I forgot the right verse there. For this reason, we also, since the day we heard it, 
do not cease to pray. This is Paul. Since the day he heard of their, their faith, he does not cease to pray for them. And to ask that you may be filled. Filled with what? The knowledge of his will. In all wisdom and spiritual understanding. So this isn't twilight zone for, all of, for those of you who are old enough to know what twilight zone is. This isn't some spiritual thing out there which you can't get to know. God wants us to know. He has a specific plan, a specific purpose for each and every one of us. But if you're not in God's word, if you're not in prayer, if you're not meditating on the things of God, how are you going to find out? It's not, it's not just going to drop on you. So, this means that to be effective in our prayer life and to have this full confidence that God hears us when we pray, we have to subordinate our will to his will. Constantly arriving at that place of, Lord, I don't want to do it. But nevertheless, not my will, but your will be done. And it's hard. It's hard because, you know, we want to do what we want to do. The Lord places before us challenges and it's like, Lord, it's too hard. I don't want to do it. But we have to get to that place of nevertheless, not my will, but your will be done. You see, even in um, the disciples' prayer, it says, your kingdom come. <laughs> your will be done. Where? We say on earth, but it's in our lives first. Because as God's will's being done in our lives first, well, then it will be outworked in the earth. Your kingdom come, your will be done in our lives first and then on the earth as your will is already being done in heaven. And so we have to have this grasp of the word. And maybe you're here today and you've just given your life to the Lord. You're thinking, well, I don't really have a grasp of the word. Well, whether you're a baby Christian or you're a mature Christian, whatever you know, you need to walk in. If you, all you know is Jesus saved me, Praise God. Walk in that. Be obedient to that. We have to have an understanding of his word. We have to grasp his word so that we can understand his will for our lives. And we have to be in this place of continuously covering everything in prayer. You see, they all work in partnership and in harmony with each other. The studying of his word, our prayer lives, fellowship, you can't get away from it. They're the things which de develop growth and maturity within the believer. And so the aim is that, and John's thoughts are that we immerse ourselves in prayer. We get so deep into the Lord that his desires become our desires. Amen.
Okay, let's move on to verse 15. And if we know that he hears us, whatever we ask, we know that we have the petitions that we have asked of him. And so, as we've already said, we know that God hears our prayers because he is our father. And if we look at the plain, simple reading of this verse, you know, it does give the impression that whatever we ask of God, he's going to give to us. But this is not what the structure of the original text is saying. And so continuing to build on what I believe we've already established, it's saying that if our prayer lives are according to his will and his purpose for our lives, then God will grant the prayers. And he will grant them according to his sovereign will and in his sovereign timing. So if our prayers are along the lines of, Lord, Make me more holy and more pure and more useful in, his ha- in your hands. Then we know that God's going to hear that because he wants to make us more holy. He wants to make us more pure and he wants to make us more useful in his hands. Amen. But if our prayers are more like, Lord, ooh, I saw a banging new car. Ooh. Diamond black. Five, five speed, whatever it is. Two, two liter. I don't know. I'm not saying God's not hearing that prayer, but I would like to say it's not necessarily according to his will. It could be, could be that, that car could be the car which, you know, you're serving the body, you're dropping everybody everywhere in it. It's a taxi used for the glory of the Lord. Hallelujah. But chances are when you get that car, it's like, don't even ask me to drop you anywhere. Come mash up my leather interior. And so, you know, the prayers need to be according to his will. We know that if it's according to his word, according to his will, he's not going to skin up on that type of prayer. Come on. You see, there's this relationship again. It's our petitions are God's petitions and God's petitions become our petitions. You see, you know, we say that God will give you the desire of your heart in a sense that he puts his desire on your heart. And so your desire becomes his desire and his desire becomes your desire. You see how it works? And so... Verses 14 and 15, as we've just seen, you know, they're prayers of petition. But now in verses 16 and 17, you know, John proceeds to highlight prayers of intercession. Which, as we know, is coming to God on behalf of others. And within this context of him addressing this, you know, he's he's addressing Sin within the congregation. Verse 16 says, If anyone sees his brother sinning a sin, which does not lead to death, he will ask and they will give him life for those who commit sin not leading to death. There is sin leading to death. I do not say that he should pray about that. Now, as I said, I pretty much got the most controversial chapter going here and uh, there's many commentators and there's many views but I'm going to hit it from this point of view and I encourage you 
study yourself, study to show yourselves approved. You know, don't just take it from here. Study and see if the be Bereans. Amen. Now, the verse starts with the word if. And so straight away, this indicates that, you know, we're... Um, amen. It starts with if. And then it specifically speaks of a brother, sorry. So we're talking about a brother, a believer. And because it starts with the word if, we can say that sin is a constant reality in all believers' lives. You know, John doesn't phrase this that, you know, on the odd opportunity that something may sin, it's if. There's a real possibility that we could sin. And, you know, this is so true in the life of all of us, isn't it? That we often slip up and miss the mark. And the fact is, is that we will continue to miss the mark, whether that is in thought, word or deed, until we are completely glorified before the Lord. And so those times when, let's just use the obvious example, you're driving along the road, somebody cuts you up and you're like, and you may have held it down verbally, but mentally, that person's got it. Again, that's just me, isn't it? All right, just, just checking. We're going to constantly have those times. We're going to have those times where we really flop and drop the ball. And we're not only going to, but we're going to see others do that as well. And John's just saying, you know, like, when you drop the ball, know that there's a place of repentance. When, when you see somebody else drop the ball, don't have this attitude of condemning. Oh, guess what happened to such and such? No. You see, he's addressing this now. You know, he's addressing this attitude we need to have when we see sin within the church. And just to touch on this a little bit more, you know, we miss the mark, whether in thought, word or deed. But the lifestyle of a believer is not that we practice missing the mark. We don't wake up every day and say, oh, wow, I wonder how I can miss the mark today. I wonder how I can just keep on sinning. We don't do that. We don't practice these things. And so he says, if anyone sees his brother sinning a sin, which does not lead to death. And so John is referring to an observable form of sin, which one believer sees in another believer. Amen. And the hope and the expectation as I've just said before, is that they won't go around gossiping about it to everybody. But in the spirit of meekness, that they will go to the Lord. It says, and he will ask, he or she will prayerfully seek the Lord in intercession. And they will go to their brother or sister in order to come alongside them. And together with the Lord, they will help them overcome the sin. You see, it's an opportunity for us 
to show brotherly love. How can you say you love God and you hate your brother? You see, it's an opportunity for us to be our brother's keeper, be our sister's keeper. And again, this is what the scriptures encourages us to do. James chapter 5 verse 19 says, Brethren, if anyone among, among you wanders from the truth and someone turns him back, let him know that he who turns a sinner from the error of his way will save a soul from death and cover a multitude of sins. Galatians chapter 6 and verse 1, Brethren, if a man is overtaken in any trespass, you who are spiritual, restore such a one in the spirit of gentleness, considering yourself lest you also be tempted. Bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. You see the attitude we should be having? It's one of love, it's one of compassion, it's one of restoration. And it goes on to say, and he, God, will give him, the person who is sinning, life for those who commit sin, not leading to death. So again, the desired outcome is restoration through repentance. Now, the apostle uses the words life and death. And as I observe the text, I believe that the word death here must be referring to physical death and not spiritual death. And the reason why I come to that conclusion is that it's talking about a brother, a believer, and a believer cannot experience spiritual death. That's my simple reasoning. I got nothing more. But if a believe if a genuine believer cannot experience spiritual death, this has to be speaking about physical death. That's my conclusion. So if it's speaking about physical death, the word life in this verse must also be speaking about physical life. And you know, there's many con- commentators who differ on this section and these verses. And again, I encourage you to study it for yourselves. But many con- commentators look at this and they, they look at examples of Ananias and Sapphira in Acts 5. They look at examples of the immoral man in 1 Corinthians 5. And they look at the examples of those who have fallen asleep because they did not discern properly the Lord's table in 1 Corinthians level. They look at that examples of somehow they had fallen into some form of sin and for some reason or not, there was some premature death. And again, because I don't, hold to the fact that believers can experience spiritual death that's a good possibility of what is being communicated in this it's the believer who somewhere along the line just I don't know I don't know exactly why the Lord took out Ananias and Sapphira like that maybe it was because it was the beginning of the early church and he just wanted to 
create a standard. He wanted to set a standard and example right there in the church so that you know, people wouldn't just associate themselves with, with the Lord Jesus Christ if they were just playing a game. But they knew that the Almighty God was serious about what he was doing in the earth at that time. I don't know. And so I do encourage you to look at it for yourselves. But moving on, John then speaks of there is sin leading to death. I do not say that he should pray about that. And my conclusion here is that I believe that John is referring to another group. And again, my reasoning for this is that keeping in mind that when John wrote this epistle, he has the Gnostics in view. He has the Gnostics in mind. And he has all those who are vehemently attacking the gospel. And the apostles' doctrine. And so, I believe that John has this group in mind where he's saying there is a sin leading to death. And again, taking this a little step further, um, John's saying, I don't say that you pray for them. Now, I don't believe he's commanding that we don't pray for them. He's just saying, you know, I say don't pray for them. And it could be in the sense of, you know, they had hardened their hearts so much. If you remember the example of Pharaoh, that he had hardened his heart so much much that God says, okay, you've hardened your heart so much, I'm going to harden your heart. And so they didn't have, a, they didn't have now, Pharaoh didn't now have that opportunity to turn around. And so I don't believe John is writing this as a command. It's as Paul says, I speak as a man. And so, I believe he's saying this because if the position of the Gnostics, for example, was not put in check, if they carried on along the road, like Pharaoh carried along the road of hardening their heart and rejecting the message of the gospel, that would lead to physical death, which would ultimately lead to spiritual death. You see, that would be the natural progression. Spiritual death in, this, in their situation would lead to, um, physical death would lead to that total separation from God. And then it would qualify as this sin leading to death. Now, have I confused you? You're good. You see, many people look at that and think, well, what is the sin leading to death? If I did such and such, is that a sin leading to death? Or if I did such and such, is that a sin leading to death? Now, as I look at the scriptures, I believe that the only sin leading to death, spiritual death, is the total rejection of the work of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit comes and reveals Jesus to you and you say, I don't want it. He brings people along your way who shares the gospel and you say, I don't need it. 
You live your whole life with people witnessing to you. You hear about Jesus. You celebrate Christmas and everything and all these things there. And you say, I don't want it. And then you die. You've rejected the only means and only provision that God has given for salvation. The work of the Holy Spirit. Working on your heart. Working on your mind. Working in other people's lives. Bringing them around you to, to share Jesus. And you say, I don't need it. That, in my humble opinion, is the unpardonable sin. Rejecting the Holy Spirit. And he's working. And this, I believe John is saying, is the, was the Gnostic's position. And this should never, ever, ever be our position in a sense. We should never get to that place that we're in sin and we're so far in sin that we never feel like we can repent. We've gone so far down the road that we feel like, well, God's never, ever going to forgive me. Well, he is a gracious God. Obviously, whatever the sin is, there may be great consequences. But God is still a forgiving God. If we confess sin, his word still says that he is faithful and he is just to cleanse us from all sins. Is that word all there? It's all, it's all, isn't it? Some sins, just a few sins, that sin, that sin, that sin, but not that. No, all sin. And so we can't get to that place as believers that we just harden our hearts. And I believe that, you know, so that believers don't take our position for granted of saying, well, God's going to forgive me. You know, I know I'm going to do this and God will just forgive me, won't he? You know, John says in verse 17, he says, all unrighteousness is sin. You know, we, we can't get it twisted. All unrighteousness is sin. And there is sin not leading to death. All unrighteousness. Um, you know, it's, it's not like God is not worried and concerned about sin. Of course he is. But he makes a provision for sin. And so, now basically God is saying, or John is saying, don't get it twisted. God doesn't make an excuse for sin, but he makes provision for sin. And um, we know that this can only be done through repentance, and finding forgiveness in the Lord. Amen. Okay. In verses 18 and 20, John, you know, he starts giving final assurances. And it's these final um, references to we know. And he wants to highlight and point out the standard and expectation of those who continue to persevere. You know, we said last week that our Christian walk is that continuing. It isn't something we decided last week, last year, five years ago. We continue with the Lord. We persevere with Christ. And in verse 18, he says, we know 
that whoever is born of God does not sin. But he who has been born of God keeps himself and the wicked one does not touch him. We know that we are of God and the whole world lies under the sway of the wicked one. And we know that the Son of God has come and has given us an understanding that we may know him who is true. And we are in him who is true. In his Son, Jesus Christ, this is the true God and eternal life. Amen. We know that whoever is born of God does not sin. And again, a more accurate rendering of this verse would be, whoever is born of God does not keep on sinning as a lifestyle. Because if it means that we don't sin, then it will be contradictory. We wouldn't have 1 John 1, 9 there, would we? And we wouldn't have the verse which says that, you know, if you say you do not sin, you're a liar. So we know that it's not that lifestyle of sinning. But he who has been born of God keeps himself. Keeps himself in the sense that it's not our desire. It's not what we aim to do from moment to moment, day to day, which is, you know, we're just going out there to sin. Our desire is not to sin. But if we do, if we do fall, we we know that that provision of God is still made available to us. And then he goes on to say, and the wicked one does not touch him. So, although within our journey with the Lord, our walk with the Lord, we have these ups, we have these downs. We have these moments where we sin or we don't sin. And we know that the enemy continuously comes knocking on our door. You're not good enough. You're not worthy. Look what you just did. Look what, don't you remember what you did five years ago? Look, at, look how that person looks at you. They don't like you. Nobody talks to you. Nobody gives you a phone call. They don't love you. They don't appreciate you. The enemy comes with those voices on a daily, knocking on your door so that you would say, it's true, they don't. And they're all bad mine. And I don't want to be around them anymore. And you know what? This Christian thing, bun it. That's what he wants to do. But we're not to fall to his voices. We're not to stumble, listen to his voice. And what this is saying is that even though we go through these situations of ups and downs, we sin, we don't sin. And the enemy wants to draw us away from the Lord. You know, the Lord is there protecting us. Ultimately, our eternal security is secure in Jesus. And that's very comforting to know that that no matter what you're going through in your life, Jesus has you. You know, he's never going to leave us nor forsake us. And so we may indeed walk through the valley of the shadow of death We may indeed go through dark and horrible times. But he's still there with us. He's still there to encourage us. You know, even if, you know, we die, 
we know that our eternal security is secure. It's secure. We go to be with the Lord. You know, Jesus said in um, John chapter 10, he says, My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. And I give them eternal life, and they shall never perish. Neither shall anyone snatch them out of my hand. Isn't that comforting? But Jesus just doesn't stop there. It says, my father who has given them to me is greater than all. And no one is able to snatch them out of my father's hands. So you're safe in Jesus' hands, but you're even safer in the father's hands. And Jesus then goes on to say, well, you know what? Don't get it twisted because me and the father are one anyway. Our eternal security is in the bag. We know that we are of God and the whole world lies under the sway of the wicked one. You see, this world in which we live in, which is trying to just pull us and draw us and just lead us astray, you know, it's, it's a divided world. You know, um, two camps. You know, those who are in Adam and those who are in Christ. Two kingdoms, kingdom of darkness, the kingdom of light. And John is encouraging us to just cling on to the Lord. To cling on to God's way of doing things. You see, the world is going fast in one direction and, and it's like God is he's working in the opposite direction. You know, the world, the world is working on this thing as I just want to be great and I just want to be famous. And, and Jesus says, if you want to be great, become the servant of all. Take the, le- the lesser position. Flips everything upside down. You see, we are in the world, but we are not of the world. We have to think differently. We have to work towards a different system. And in verse 20, it says, and we know that the son of God has come. Do we know that? Jesus has come and has given us an understanding. He gives us understanding through his word to get to know him, that we may know him who is true. And we are in him. Wow. Who is true. In his son, Jesus Christ, this is the true God and eternal life. You see, you just read that verse there and it's just comforting. You don't even have to unpack that. Just read it. It just speaks for itself. And you know, if there's ever those times when you're doubting in your mind whether Jesus loves you, whether God loves you, just come to that verse there. Be assured, be comforted. And then finally, you know, in a very, very weird way, John closes the letter by saying, little children, keep yourselves from idols. Amen. Little children, keep yourself from idols. You see, the final thought is this safeguard. Because um, we as believers, we're fickle. Amen. 
We just need to be reminded of things over and over again. We have to keep it in our forefront what we need to do. You think of um, the children of Israel. You know, Moses would perform a miracle and they would sort of like, you know, drink water from the rock or get manna from heaven or whatever. And the next thing they're complaining. And then they perform a miracle. Five minutes later, they're complaining. And you know what? We're the same. We need to be reminded. We need to have these safeguards within our lives. And, and John is basically saying, you know what? You need to have this safeguard. What's in the world is idols. And we can make idols out of anything. And the world loves to express itself in constructing idols. That's what it does. And an idol basically is anything that occupies the place of God in our lives. So think about it. What's the thing which you could say, you know what? Before I turn to my Bible, I turn to this. Instead of me going to the Lord in prayer, (laughs) I'd rather go and fill in the blank. If you can think of something, ooh, well, ask yourself, is it an idol? Is it something which is take, has been elevated in my life to a place where it shouldn't really be? Now, that, I'm not saying don't like football. Don't check the football results. Don't watch a bit of EastEnders if that's your thing. I'm not saying fill in the blanks. But what I'm saying is, if you've created that thing and elevated into a place where it means to you more than Jesus, it's off key. And you need to check it. And so, if it's something, whether it's in the moral sphere, the material sphere, the intellectual sphere, you know, some people just want to have degrees upon degrees upon degrees. Nothing wrong with a degree, but has that become an idol in your life? It could be our vocation, our job. You know what? My job, I love it. And it could be our goals. You know what? I have this goal, I have this dream, and I just want to fulfill it. Yeah, but does Jesus want you to have that goal? Is it in line with his will for your life? Well, maybe not. Well, maybe that's become an idol in your life. It could be, and this is a weird one, it could be our doctrine. We're so boastful in what we know. And the Bible says knowledge puffs up, becomes an idol. Always want to be heard, always want to have your opinion that you know what you know. You want to be the one who's like the voice piece. Could be an idol. What you know about Jesus is more than your love for Jesus. Weird, isn't it? Idol worship. It could be a relationship. It could be your boyfriend or your girlfriend, your husband or your wife. You've elevated them to such a position in your life that they mean more to you than Jesus. 
And again, within God's standard, it's your relationship with Jesus. Then your relationship with your partner. If you have children, your relationship with your children. And then your relationship with your spiritual family. That should really be the order. Amen. So I believe it's not a weird and obscure verse to put in there and to end the letter. I think it's like, be on guard. Because if you don't think about it, these things will just take you astray. In your heart, you've turned from God. In your heart, you've created an idol. And so, just to end, it's anything that is raised to that position where it does not glorify Christ. And John's saying, guard yourself from that. But, can I... um, Can I just end on verse 20? Because I think it's a nicer place to end. And we know that the Son of God has come. Amen? And has given us an understanding that we may know him who is true. And we are in him who is true. In his Son, Jesus. This is the true God and eternal life. Heavenly Father, we just thank you that we're in you. We thank you, Lord, that we have eternal life. Wow, Lord, eternal life, that we will be eternally in your presence, Lord. I mean, we can't even comprehend what that means. But Lord, it's a gift you've given to us. Help us, Lord, to do all that we can do to cultivate a healthy prayer life a healthy study life Lord where we can get to know your will that we can pray to that end Lord of establishing your will within our lives Lord but within our communities Lord Lord we commit these things into your hands because we know Lord that you're able to do exceedingly And abundantly above and beyond all that we can think or ask, Lord. Because you are indeed the Almighty. Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the epistle of 1 John, Lord. And the assurances which he has given to us, Lord. Help us, Lord, not to just, you know, close the book and just think, well, that was a good journey. But to always be mindful of referring to the promises you have given us in your word, Lord. Lord, we love you because you are great. We love you, Lord, because you're amazing. And communicate that love, Lord, to others within your family. In Jesus' name, amen. To find out more about us, visit our website at calvarychapelsouthlondon.org or find us on Facebook and Twitter at CC South London. Join us next time for more of God's truth to transform your reality.